0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Room for Thought. I'm Douglas Carswell, and I'm joined today by Christian Nimitz. Christian, thank you for coming in. No, thanks for having me. Now, Christian, you've written um, an extraordinary book. It's about socialism, mm-hmm. um, an idea that seems to be coming back with a vengeance. Tell us a little bit about this. Are young people today genuinely more left-wing, more socialistic than previous generations? And if so, why?
1: It looks that way, uh, at least from the opinion surveys, there are plenty of surveys that show that younger people have firstly a positive view of socialism, both in the abstract, but also uh, are very strongly in favour of specific policies that you could reasonably describe as socialists, in favour of mass nationalisations of various industries, of price controls, of state-directed investment. Why exactly that is? I don't know, I'm not a sociologist. I, th- I think it is partly fueled by um, by understandable discontent with some aspects of our economic system. Uh, the housing market, in particular, is is very heavily rigged against. Well, not specifically young people, but renters, non-homeowners in general, and most of them happen to be young people. And um, become a cartel if you were happy
0: if you're fortunate enough to be born thirty years earlier and to have bought somewhere in the 1980s or 1990s, you've done very well. But if you're younger, the chances of you getting a place in London or the southeast of England or, or indeed anywhere are often nil.
1: Yes, I think it's mostly happened by accident. It's not that uh, there is some council of, uh, of baby boomers that got together somewhere and, <laughs> and, and said, let's design a system that extracts... Then all that content. <laughs> <from them. laughs> Maybe not, but they, they were lucky and then uh, accidentally preserved it that way that... Um, I mean, it's, it's a longer story how, how this whole housing uh, problem developed. It's, mm-hmm. It started actually with, with the Town and Country Planning Act in, in the 40s, but that was not initially a big issue. There was still enough land for development. It's just that once the, uh, the low-hanging fruits were picked, the easy mm-hmm. options were dried up. Yeah. But it's, uh, not, it's not purely a question of housing. I mean, could it be that with the
0: technological changes we've seen, with the advent of broadband and mobile telephone in every pocket, people are so used to the idea of a sort of a sharing economy, almost like a gig economy. You can, you know, rent out a house on Airbnb to complete strangers. You can cooperate with people. You can um, get a a job working part time for almost complete strangers. Might it be that this has sort of created a, a, a sort of culture of, I don't know, dot communalism almost, where people feel that you know, there's this, there's this, um, there's a sort of caring, sharing, communalism
1: out there. That to be honest sounds to me like you're observing a phenomenon that seems profoundly irrational, namely a comeback of an idea that has failed over two dozen times, and trying to project something sensible into it. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I don't think it is that because that, that's very much uh, the, the sharing economy is very much a capitalist. Phenomenon. What it is simply is technology has, um, in this case, not created something fundamentally new. That there's always been uh, a sharing of, of assets. Uh, when I was an undergraduate, uh, the the internet was in in its early stages. Those technologies didn't exist, but there was, of course, a board at the university where somebody would say, uh, "I've got this uh, this book here that I no longer use. I've passed the exam." Mm-hmm. Uh, the the, the... Gig economy is almost the ultimate expression
0: of the free market. It's it's not a rejection of it. It's it's um, it's the mm. the most beautiful expression of the free market possible. People can
1: yeah. What it has done is lower transaction costs. Yeah. It was it would always have been possible to sublet your room to someone. It's just yeah. that uh, before the internet or in or even in the early stages of the internet, uh, the issue was trust. Uh, you wouldn't have trusted a complete stranger or first of all you, you wouldn't even have known about some latent demand for uh-huh. some asset that you own that you don't use very much and the cost of that has come down massively mm-hmm. uh, through these new technologies. I mean isn't there an inherent contradiction though if you
0: grow up you're a millennial or, or even younger you're generation x you benefit enormously from these big global corporations google amazon Um, Apple. And yet at the same time, you're, according to some of these surveys, rejecting the very economic system that created these companies that have given you so much. Isn't isn't there a sort of inherent contradiction in a younger generation rejecting the free market when they're the principal beneficiaries of 30 or 40
1: years of globalisation? I think there is. and I think that's because they're just not attributing that to capitalism. They they would see that as something that has just somehow happened, maybe not thinking very much about why and how. Uh, but but they certainly wouldn't believe that under socialism that you would not have Google anymore. Mm-hmm. They, they'd either. Um, Can
0: you imagine uh, a government-run Google? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> be, I'd rather not. To. There'd be a waiting list for it. Yeah, you have to apply in advance. <laughs> it be like trying to get a GP right. booking. <laughs> it's going to get allocated on the basis of need by a points-based system. Yeah, and they'd only yeah. tell you what they wanted you to hear. <laughs> yeah, rather not. No, there is. That there was, uh, when uh, when Sadiq Khan was trying to shut down Uber in, in London, there were some of the the uh, alternative left uh, media platforms mm-hmm. uh, were trying to square that circle, knowing, of course, their supporters, uh, their, their consumers, people who listen to, to their shows, uh, would be using the these uh, companies all the time. The They're avid Uber and, fans. And, 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 yeah. Absolutely. So they try to square that circle by saying, look, we, we, we're not trying to abolish it. We're trying to turn it into a worker-owned cooperative, a people's Uber. <laughs> um...
0: <laughs> Could it be that one of the reasons why young people in America and Britain and some European countries seem to be more socialist is is simply there's no folk memory of what real socialism means. If you grew up in this country in the 1970s, you saw socialism in action. It meant the lights went out halfway through the week. It meant that there was rubbish piling up in the streets. It meant that the value of your money lost, you know, it it lost its value um, dramatically. You could see socialism not working, whereas could it be that it's simply a case of just no folk memory amongst people under the age of 40, they just, they're just they just not aware of what socialism actually means.
1: Um, that would be true of the the type of millennial socialist who mostly jumps on the bandwagon, who sees oh, this is the trendy thing to do now, it's now cool to be a socialist, so mm-hmm. uh, I'll go along with that. For, for those people it could be true, but the more vocal ones, the ones who go on the media, the ones who have big social media platforms. The
0: intellectual elite
1: uh yeah they would know about that they would be much better politically informed they would know about Mm -hmm. um for say mixed economies halfway socialist economies like britain in the 70s but also about uh fully socialist economies like the soviet union and Mm -hmm. uh and eastern european allies they they would know about that
0: your, your book is in a way a repudiation of those who claim that you know we've never had proper socialism you go through a series of examples and you show that actually there's a, there's a, there's a similar pattern. Everywhere where socialism has been tried, um, it starts out with people saying, it's wonderful. We're trying this new rational way of organizing society. It's going to be great. Then it ends up in uh, disappointment. Then it ends up in disaster and catastrophe. And then it ends up with people saying, oh, that wasn't real socialism at all. Talk, talk me through some of those examples.
1: Yes. Uh, First of all, that's where I think the folk memory uh, argument matters. It's not so much that they don't know that the Soviet Union was bad or that that it meant a lot of queuing uh, and and, and waiting. Uh, I think they do know that. But what they don't know, where the folk memory is, is lacking, is that there once were Western socialists thinking very much like them who would have idolized those places, Mm -hmm. and that initially the rhetoric uh, was very much like the rhetoric of millennial socialism today, that Mm -hmm. uh, in the 1960s a Western student who was idolizing uh, Maoist China or Vietnam from afar, they would have sounded very much like a millennial socialist. They would not have said yeah, they're building a kind of authoritarian technocratic socialism there, that's because that's the way it has to work. No, they would have said Absolutely not. This may look like a dictatorship, but they are actually mm-hmm. building a genuine peasants' democracy there. This is a place where the workers are in charge. So this at, has always been at, ambition.
0: At the time that atrocities were being committed on a vast scale in Cambodia, at the time that um, you know, millions of people were being liquidated by Stalin, you're saying that there were apologists for that in the West yes. who were saying, no, 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 that's not true. Actually, what's happening out there is, is wonderful. It's the future. It's, it's progress.
1: Yes, this has happened um, pretty much every time. Whenever there was a socialist revolution somewhere in the world over the past hundred years, within a couple of minutes, the first Western intellectuals would arrive and tell you that this is a completely new, completely different experiment, and, and they're building real socialism. Let's start off with the, the, the French Revolution. I mean,
0: a lot of yeah. people here in London at the time of the French Revolution thought this is a wonderful thing. Mm-hmm. And it's only, you know, even Thomas Paine, who was involved in the American Revolution, he he was so enthused about the French Revolution. He went to Paris, became a French citizen, stood in the assembly. It's only when he nearly lost his head at the guillotine that he finally woke up to it. So it's... It's okay. a it's a it's a persistent persistent pattern.
1: Yeah, maybe I should have gone back to even earlier times. So I'm starting with the Soviet Union, where that there, there was, uh-huh. where that clearly was the pattern as you've described. It was initially the, the honeymoon period in the 1930s, where thousands of Western intellectuals were idolizing the Soviet Union. They were seeing the industrial progress that they were making at the time, mm-hmm. and which was true. That it uh, it did become a global superpower at that, that stage. Mm-hmm. So it had some achievements. Mm-hmm. It's not that it was all just fantasy. And we um, were projecting a lot of hopes and desires into that. But definitely in the 1930s, uh, if, if somebody had said the Soviet Union isn't real socialism, that would have been an outlandish belief. There were a few anarchists who always said that, who hated Lenin right from the start, but that was very much the sort of romantic, utopian socialist. Mainstream socialists at that time very much would have said, that is real socialism, that is brilliant.
0: I- I've actually heard a couple of old fashioned lefties here in the UK, trying to explain to me that the problem with communism and socialism in, in Russia is that Stalin was trying to do it. If, if only old Trotsky had been allowed to do it, all would have been well. Um, I don't quite know where to, where to start with that. But your book's very convincing on this. But there is a counter argument, isn't there? I mean, take the example of China. Now, I mean, another way of looking at it is that until the mid-1940s, China had been run by various parasitic interests for hundreds of years. Some of them were foreign parasitic interests. The communists do come in, they kick those parasitic interests out. And, I mean, if you stop and look at it, since the mid-1940s, China's done phenomenally well. Isn't there a counter-argument to say, actually, in China... The communist record has been pretty good
1: well f- first of all uh, in in the 50s they had the greatest famine in all of recorded human history and, and it uh, was i mean literally then, tens of millions yes died. yes that plus then uh, their version of the gulags and yeah. uh, mass executions uh, yeah. but but even just if, if we if we ignore all that and just look at the economic record um even after the famine china pretty much stagnated until the, the 80s. It was not while they went along with pure socialism that they made that progress. It was only once they started to liberalise liberalize a little bit, after Mao's death and under no. Deng Xiaoping, that, uh, that their economy slowly started to, to take off. So, so saying,
0: not... e- even though the communists took over, communism, socialism, kept the country poor and ruined it for many right up until Mao dies... And then in 78, 79, when they in effect ditch socialism, that's when the progress starts.
1: Yes. Although I guess a defender of that regime would now say, well, even before you had increases in, in literacy and uh, in life expectancy, And that's often true. Well, you couldn't,
0: have had, you couldn't have had anything but an increase in life expectancy, given what had happened in China in the 1940s. And yes. I think I'm right in saying the per capita GDP in China in 1945, 46... Was about what it had been the year that Jesus was born. I mean, it was it was it was pretty extraordinarily low. It couldn't have got much lower. Yeah, that's that's
1: fair to say. But that's that's generally true that for most of of human history there was uh, almost zero sustained progress everywhere, and that uh, that only started with industrialization and the advent of capitalism. Uh, mm-hmm. in, in in that sense, um, sure. Uh, Nobody who, who, uh, who is criticizing Maoism is, uh, is saying the way things were before Mao were brilliant. But mm-hmm. uh, the, the relevant counterfactual is not feudalism. It's not what they had before. It's something more like Taiwan. I think that's the realistic counterfactual in the case of China, that mm-hmm. uh, if, the, if the socialist revolution had never happened, the whole country might have become one very big Taiwan. And Taiwan today is richer than Britain. So that's the relevant counterfactual. It's not just that they avoided the the absolute worst disasters of Maoism. It's that what happened in China in the 80s and 90s is something that happened already in the 50s in Taiwan.
0: It could have happened a generation earlier. Yes. Um, Cuba, another classic example. Even today, I saw a program on Netflix quite recently um, made by an American filmmaker who keeps on going back to Cuba. And there's this idea that somehow there's something quaint about Cuba that it's, you know it 's been frozen in time it 's got all these cars from the 1950s, and that you know Castro wasn't all that bad, but I mean people were people were murdered in, 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 in Cuba the regime was a it was a dictatorship it was a, it was a murderous dictatorship
1: wasn't it sure it was well by socialist standards not particularly bad I mean Castro uh, he was, whatever you can say about him, he was no Mao, he was no Stalin. There are certainly far worse examples. In relative terms, it's one of the better Mm. ones, one of the Mm. less atrocious ones. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is the example that, uh, in, in my book at least, is a bit of an outlier. It doesn't fully... Fit this three-stage pattern that I'm describing elsewhere: the honeymoon period, and then the excuse-making period, and then the "oh, that wasn't real socialism." uh, Leave me alone with that. Uh, (laughs) The final stage. Cuba never quite got there. Even today, it's not particularly hard to find um, not full-on supporters. Nobody, uh, even even a committed socialist, nobody would tell you this is the future. This is the system that we want for the whole world. But uh, the sort of as as you said. The the quaintness, uh, the romanticism, some remnant of that is is still there.
0: But Um, for me, the most dramatic example that I can think of, where people have gone from the first stage of eulogizing socialism to saying, oh, it's not the the failures of the system were because of something other than socialism, is Venezuela. I, I remember, since Twitter's been around, reading tweets by Labour members of Parliament defending the system in Venezuela... And yet we know now that people in Venezuela are having to eat their pets and people are denying that it's a consequence of socialism. They're saying, oh, it's American sanctions or it's a a conspiracy against against Venezuela. Tell me a little bit about that. Why does do you think that Venezuela stands out as a particularly poignant example? Because it's happening. It's happening right now. The tragedy is in front of our eyes.
1: Yes, so in that, that fits this three-stage uh, pattern to a T. It uh, fits perfectly like a glove. It was from about the mid-2000s until just after Travis's death. That was the... The high point—that was their great honeymoon period. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, the reason
1: for that was that I mean,
0: Cor- Corbin, I think, used to eulogise it, didn't he? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, he—he yeah. he was a bit
1: behind the curve, as is sometimes the case. Uh, he still eulogised it in 2015, I think, when the economy was already in freefall. When when uh, he was still he praising the system. things. Yes. Yeah. yeah. yeah that, that was just before he he became a, a more. Widely known figure.
0: And I think I'm right in saying too that Venezuela in the 1960s and possibly even the 70s had a higher standard of living per capita than the United States. Is that right?
1: That doesn't sound right to me, but probably higher than parts of Southern Europe. Higher than parts of Southern Europe. Close to to first world standards. Uh, It was because of the oil wealth, of course. It was never a particularly successful economy. Uh, It was a petrodollar economy. The government got its revenue out of the ground, so it
0: didn't need to be nice to the people. Yeah,
1: Yeah. and and that's why they they didn't uh, develop particularly good institutions. So there was uh, patronage uh, was going on before Mm -hmm. Chavez. Mm -hmm. It's just that um, Chavez more strengthened the worst features. Of, uh, of of that economy, so, something like, it was a bit like like Greece, uh, Greece in the eighties when when they had their spending splurge. If you imagine they had suddenly stumbled across oil wealth, the kind of economy that that would have been, yeah, that yeah. would be the most realistic uh, comparison, I think.
0: And suddenly the government could spend what it wanted on its priorities, yeah. corruption, a parasitic client state at the top, all the mm-hmm. rest of it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, you you're from Germany, is that right? Yes. Yeah. And you grew up in it. Was it the Old West Germany West, or the yeah. East Germany? The West Germany. Mm-hmm. Do you yourself have a folk memory or a, a personal memory, I should say, of, of of the Berlin Wall coming down? And uh, did you grow up with people who had lived under the East German system? No, that's
1: one of the things uh, that I regret, that uh, that I never saw the Old East. I mean, I, I did move to East Berlin, but that was uh, more than a decade after reunification. Yeah. Uh, of course, I, I know a lot of people who uh, who grew up in the GDR. Mm-hmm. Uh, people of my age who do have folk memories and. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, most of the things that they, they 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 will tell you is the first Western product that they bought, uh, just <laughs> after the war. And they still remember all that. Or tropical fruits, things like that. How they were all uh, the sh- amazed by that.
0: The sheer. Interest- but even then, I mean, I I've been watching a program on I think Deutschland '86, and it's a spy thriller about a East German spy in the West and all the rest. Of it. Yeah, so it's '83 it's
1: it's a- first, and then '86. Yeah.
0: The it's, it's a sort of East German version of James Bond, I guess. But even that, there's a danger that it slightly it slightly whitewashes what's going on. I mean, this is a regime that used to kill its own people when they tried to escape from it. It, it was a pretty, 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 pretty grim system.
1: Yeah, that 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 is happening. That that uh, a lot of serious movies that, that take place in uh, in the GDR are sort of half comedies, um, and I guess it's a good take to to see it with some humor uh, of course it, it happened you can no longer mm. change it uh, why not put that spin on it um, but what happened there was that the idea that GDR socialism was not real socialism was there actually right from the start um, why would uh, they say it's not real so- why would the socialists today say it's not real socialism they said it even at the time there were resistance groups in the 80s in the GDR saboteurs <laughs> yes, from, from the regime's perspective, saboteurs, although uh, the, the successor party of the uh, what was then the Socialist Unity Party, the the, the ruling party, mm-hmm. is still around, and later on they accommodated some of those former dissidents, saying mm-hmm. maybe if we had listened to those people, maybe it would all have been different, and that's, that's something where folk memory matters again, because this just shows the idea that it could also be completely different, that it was just a few people at the top going slightly wrong, misunderstanding socialism. is not a new idea at all. That's always been around.
0: What, what I find so extraordinary is, in your book, you set out very clearly there have been these attempts in different decades, in different countries, in different cultures to create socialism. And it always ends in human disaster, in tragedy. It always falls apart because of its own inability to organise society properly and generate happiness. Yet in the UK today, you get people talking about Corbynism, this idea you know, that there's going to be a, a government that will come in and nationalize the uh, water companies, nationalize the railroads. Um, they talk about um, QE, quantitative easing, people's quantitative easing. This is basically the idea that the government's going to print vast quantities of money and spend it on making us all, all better off. Um. There's also talk of higher taxation, taxation taxation on second homes, taxation on people who own properties worth more than a certain amount. Um, what, What do you think the consequence of this would be? Do you think we would we would see the economic impact right away? Do you think there'd be a prolonged honeymoon period before then? How how quickly would it take Corbynism to unravel?
1: Oh, that's a good question. Um, That would also depend on internal power dynamics within the party that I know nothing about, whether there are people who could potentially constrain the worst impulses of the the proper socialists Mm -hmm. uh, and, and moderate it somehow from within. I don't know. I guess the closest comparison would be uh, Mitterrand in France in the early 80s. That was also a proper socialist government for a couple of years. They had investors fleeing. Uh, it, it all started to fall apart within two years. Mm-hmm. And uh, Mitterrand, being relatively pragmatic, then realized, oh, no, I can't do that. I have mm-hmm. to do a U-turn mm-hmm. and stop the nationalization program and went back to middle of the road. I mean, not not free market policies, but Mixed. reasonably okay. Yeah. And if something like that happened, that might be maybe the best outcome. Mm -hmm. But then I've also seen some Corbynistas uh, are aware of that and are explicitly using that as an example, saying... We need to make sure that this doesn't yeah. happen, therefore we yeah. need capital controls so that yeah. nobody can flee. That's one reason why capital controls, were this idea I mean, is good, good, come
0: good, good, good luck with capital controls. Um, I think they might just encourage everyone to have a Bitcoin account, but hey, maybe they, maybe they'll make it illegal to uh, 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 own, yeah, own to a Bitcoin account. Um, one, one thing that I, I do think those of us who believe in the free market need to address is that however much we might regard socialism and Corbynism as a problem... One of the reasons, perhaps, why they attract a certain crowd, I'm not talking about the people who go to Glastonbury and cheer socialism as a fashion statement, but why a significant number of blue-collar Brits, if you like, are attracted to some of this is because I, you know, I think there, there is real inequality. There is a real problem with a housing market, as we were discussing earlier, that, that, that doesn't function. Now, a young person today can get a great deal on cheap data for their mobile phone, um, they can get a great deal when it comes to buying cheap consumer goods built in China. But if they actually want to own a house, um, forget it. Even, even a car. Cars are relatively cheap. but government policy towards car ownership is so hostile. And I, I just wonder if people who believe in the free market, rather than making attacking socialism their first line of defence against Corbyn, need to actually understand and recognize that what we call the free market today is not really the free market at all.
1: I'm in principle sympathetic to that, but there is just a danger that we start sounding like socialists. I was going to say this. I was going <laughs> to say, lure oh, you into that. Okay. We've
0: never tried free market capitalism properly. <laughs> yeah. is, is, is there something in that, though? I mean, I'm, I'm a free market libertarian. I look at Switzerland. I look at Hong Kong. They're probably two societies closest to my ideal. Yeah. In many ways. But actually, there are all sorts of regulatory redistributive things that go on there. And I wouldn't put Hong Kong at the top of my list in terms of political freedoms today. So is there a danger that perhaps those of us who believe in the free market are, as you say, making the same mistake, the mirror image error of the socialists that we're looking for utopia and actually utopia doesn't exist. That's the whole point. Um.
1: Well, it isn't the mirror image because a socialist would just not accept any responsibility for uh, for any socialist society. They would say, none of that was real socialism. It's got absolutely nothing to do with me, whereas uh, even a a free market purist would still be able to identify those uh, examples, Switzerland, Hong Kong, saying, yeah, that's still quite far away from my absolute ideal, but it's pretty good. It's something that I could live with. Mm -hmm. And that's a very different argument. If somebody said... Uh, the Soviet Union was pretty good, but here's what I think they could have done even better, mm-hmm. which is the sort of Seamus Mill argument, that, that does exist, but it's it's quite rare on on the socialist mm-hmm. left. There mm-hmm. it's more sort of, no, my socialism will be totally different, nothing mm-hmm. to do with anything that existed. Mm-hmm. And I think there's, there's, there's a huge qualitative difference between saying this is maybe um, a 7 out of 10 on my scale, and it's pretty okay. Okay. Um, I want to talk to you, if I may, a little bit
0: about the question of Europe, the European Union. I know we're on probably slightly different sides. I'm a passionate lever and I'm, I'm, I'm guessing you probably, if you had a vote, would have been more reluctant to vote Leave and possibly you may even have voted Remain. If you believe in the free market, do you think you can honestly support the European Union as a project? Is it, do, you, do you think of it as a free market liberalising force?
1: Uh, I don't personally. That's, that's why during the referendum I was very mildly pro-leave, but uh, so I'm, I'm, I was not a remainer. I was just a very reluctant uh, leaver. Um, Probably because, because I, pretty I, much in line with most people, actually. Possibly, maybe not the same reasoning. I was. Uh, you were 52% I, one way, 48% the other way. <laughs> well, it's it's more uh, a different attitudes to different parts of, yeah. of the whole project. Yeah. Uh, I've always been quite very hostile to the customs union, still uh, still am today, but I'm much more fond of the single market. Uh, I think this mm-hmm. is something where, even though the arguments are true, uh, that uh, single market members like Norway are rule takers, I, I, I think this would still be better... Than any of the alternatives I can see right mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. Um, so those aspects are; those are aspects where the liberalizing elements at least uh, outweigh. The, the non-liberalizing ones. It is true mm-hmm. that some single market rules mm-hmm. uh, maybe benefit incumbents and maybe anti-competitive that you mm-hmm. could imagine a Britain outside or, or just uh, any non-member outside mm-hmm. uh, being a much greater liberalizer there. It's just that with the current political climate, uh, never never mind Corbynism, but mm-hmm. also uh, the current government is not, not very keen on, on liberalization Absolutely. and, and yeah. markets. I, I just can't re- see uh britain becoming a liberalizer outside of the single market
0: what would your ideal relationship be if if you could say you know europe needs to change the european union is not ideal what would your ideal europe look like
1: uh it would probably be i mean i I quite like the swiss arrangement where they're clearly outside of the political structures Mm Uh, have a slightly more complex relationship with the single market, half in, half out. Uh, but a very, high, very high rate
0: of immigration. Though. I think one in five yes. workers in Switzerland is non-Swiss. Very high labor mobility.
1: Yes, yeah, and that I'm completely in favor of. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that was also one of my, my uh, reasons for reluctance about leave, that mm-hmm. if it means ending free movement, mm-hmm. that in itself is going to be uh, mm-hmm. such a big downside that uh, you would have to have colossal gains in other areas to to weigh that out. I don't see that happening. I suspect,
0: I mean, my my wish is, and I think we might get there, we'll end up with a situation where you have free movement of, not of free movement of people, but free movement of workers. So that if you're offered a job and it pays enough to preclude you from claiming any in-work benefits, you'd be allowed to move. I'm guessing that's where we're going to end up, just reading between the lines. And I suspect also, even though we, I think we'll leave the single market, I think you'll end up with a system of mutual standard recognition. So in effect, if you're selling goods into the UK or manufacturing goods in the UK, if they comply with EU regulations, you can sell them in the UK. Um, It it, 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 it might be mutual standard recognition, Mm. but not mutual, if that makes sense. It's a unilateral system.
1: Yeah, that's that's very optimistic. That would that would be almost ideal. It uh, yeah. would be great if we could end up with something like that. That, that would be even better, the, the mutual recognition, but still have that regulatory competition.
0: And then you could presumably extend it to America and Australia and other countries, and you could say, actually, if you comply with federal regulators in America or Australian regulations, and, you know, the, the British consumer can then choose if they're willing to buy a product that's been approved by a foreign regulator.
1: Yeah, that would be ideal. Yeah. Um, Good.
0: Um, People often use the phrase liberal democracy. And there's an assumption quite often when they do so that liberalism, by which I mean people's freedom to buy and sell and produce what they want, um, and indeed think and uh, say what they want, um, is part and parcel of democracy. Do you think that actually democracy can end up being hostile to liberalism and there's a contradiction?
1: Yes, absolutely. Why do you think that? Well, as a liberal, uh, first of all, uh, a liberal is liberalism is about constraining the power of the state, uh, but that should equally apply to a democratic state. So everything that, that limits the power of the state also limits the scope of democracy. Liberalism. Surely, should should about... democracy is a pretty effective
0: constraint upon the state.
1: It doesn't have to be. Uh, you can also have a, a tyrannical majority. Uh, forcing its preferences on the minority. Give and, me
0: an example.
1: Well, a lot of nanny state regulations are, at least according to some surveys, quite popular. There is a demand ban, for that. Ban
0: drinking straws! Hooray!
1: <laughs> it's <laughs> pathetic. Yeah. And I guess in earlier times, a lot of restrictions on lifestyles would have would also have been quite quite popular. Yeah. So. Uh, Majorities can be tyrannical, and uh, protection of of uh, individual liberties is not necessarily a majoritarian project.
0: Mm-hmm. So. I I would argue that in societies that have successfully constrained the powerful, um, there tends to be a a a series of institutions um, that disperse and diffuse. It's not particularly, it's not It's not my original argument. I, others have made it much more eloquently. Akamoglu and Robinson in Why Nations Fail. Um, and, you know, it goes right back to, you know, the Republics of Rome and, uh, and Greece. Um, you can see examples of societies where the powerful couldn't get their way because there was, you know, a multiplicity of different institutions. But it does seem to me that it's difficult to guarantee that you would constrain the powerful in this day and age without a powerful democratic constraint. It's simply because so much of the overbearing reach of the state today is technocratic. It's it's government officials presuming they know best because of empirical data. Often it turns out that actually that empirical evidence is is nothing of the kind. It's, it's uh, officials selecting the information they want to come to the conclusions they want. But I can't really see how you rein in technocracy other than... With, with, with more direct democracy, and I, I take on board your points about you know, the, the tyranny of the majority, but I, I can't help noticing that you know Switzerland, with its direct democracy, also has government spending a much lower share of um, GDP as a, as a ratio. Um, countries that generally have a, 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 a powerful system of democracy um, you know, have a fast turnover of rulers. And if rulers fear they're going to lose their jobs, it tends to, it tends to keep them on their toes.
1: Okay, but the Swiss system as works because not because it's particularly democratic, but because it's very decentralised. At the local level, that's uh, you, you can have all sorts of uh, mechanisms for direct democracy. It's a very different story if you had a populist coming up with. An economically very stupid idea, you would very quickly see the consequences. You would have investors fleeing to a different canton. It wouldn't be particularly hard. Uh, it's not like capital flight between nations. And,
0: and, and, and also, we often talk about the Swiss system, but if you look closely, the Swiss, I think, have two different types of referendum. And one referendum is, in effect, a veto referendum. It's, it's not to propose something, it's to veto the executive yeah. doing something. And on the Swiss system, I would say, the, the really successful element of their direct democracy is saying no to what the government wants to do. It's not proposing that the government does something. And I think there's a big, big difference between the two. Yeah,
1: I don't know what the ratio is between these positive and, and negative referendums, but yeah, that, that sounds about right. Mm-hmm. But even where, um, where a referendum is initiated uh, in order to... To promote something positive, it is often liberty enhancing. And I think that that is because they have a system of intense competition for residents, for taxpayers. Mm-hmm. There's one example that, that I always remember because I was writing about, uh, airport capacity in Britain and, and the whole never ending saga of Heathrow mm-hmm. I was comparing that to a, a Swiss example where there was some law that, that ruled out future expansions of, uh, of, I think, Zürich Airport, where that was then overturned by a residents' initiative. It was the residents who wanted the possibility of, of expansion. They mm. wanted the airport to be able to grow, and that's because they, they keep the, the tax revenue that's generated there in the <laughs> local area. <laughs> That's uh, it maybe maybe the government here should should learn. I mean but that's I d- what I concluded yeah, in the paper, yeah, yes.
0: Yeah. Um you know, I don't think we've built a run- a new runway in this country for decades. I mean it's quite extraordinary. No, no it's still,
1: it's the same infrastructure uh, as in the fifties.
0: And what's interesting about Heathrow I mean I I live directly under the flight path of the um runway to Heathrow and I have aeroplanes flying over my head all the time. Number one, I don't notice it, I've never noticed it. Number two they were there long before I bought my house. So I can't really complain. And number three, the thing that really bothers me about Heathrow Airport is not the airplanes that fly into it. It's when I take my family there in the summer, we have to queue for hours because there's too, yeah. too many people and not enough runway.
1: yes <laughs> it's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. The trouble there is just that if that happens, okay, you would know the reason. But I, I, I guess if 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 you don't follow, it, it's a fairly specialised niche subject, airports uh, or infrastructure policy. That normally you you just wouldn't know why that is. You would notice you're stuck somewhere, you don't yeah. get takeoff permission, but yeah. you would blame it on the airport. You blame the airline or whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's what I used to do be, yeah. before uh, before I started writing this paper. Yeah. I thought, wow, Heathrow is just exceptionally badly run, and then realised, oh no, actually <laughs> they're, they're doing a pretty good job given the given how over-capacity they are. Um, Changing text slightly. Do Do you think all cultures
0: around the world are of equal worth? It's a question I ask everyone I interview. No. No. Okay. Do you think... Could you elaborate a bit? I mean, do you think some cultures at certain times are better than they were previously, so you get cultural progression and regression? Do you, think, do you think, for example, Western culture is better at sustaining progress and scientific advancement and human liberty than other cultures?
1: Yeah, there's no question. That's, that's why almost all migration movements are uh, towards these freer.
0: Now, my, my next question. If, if what you say is right, and there are certain societies that are better able to sustain a free market and human progress, and understandably there are lots of people who want to share in that, and I would agree with you, that's one of the reasons why people are voting with their feet. Should you have an immigration policy that actually looks at issues of cultural compatibility and actually, you know, if you're a small island like we are, you've got lots of people wanting to come, should you, as part of your immigration policy, instead of just looking at the skills people bring, yeah. actually say, do you know what, there are certain values you have to, you have to subscribe to. Um, it, it goes well beyond, you know... Um, being able to sing a verse of the national anthem and other such nonsense. Are there actually perhaps, should there be an onus on accepting people from from cultures that are likely to be more compatible with free market capitalism?
1: doesn't have to be specifically free market capitalism, uh, because if, if you did that, you would probably have to turn away most French citizens, but, um, <laughs> well, there are plenty <laughs> of Brits who aren't,
0: aren't pro free market capitalism. Sure. Yeah. yeah. But,
1: um, yeah, I, I think there's nothing wrong with recognizing in the immigration system that of course, some people will fit in much easier, uh, mm. much more easily than, than others. And, uh, I know uh, during the the referendum leave, the leave side was always bringing up this Australian example. Well, even Australia has free movement with New Zealand because they they don't apply this point system to the whole world. Of course, they recognize that somebody from New Zealand is not really a foreigner. It's technically a foreign country, but we all know there is also this... um, It's like we regard Americans and Australians. They're not really that different. They're cousins. Yeah, yeah. 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 And there's, there's nothing wrong with recognizing that in the immigration system. Yeah, yeah. That's why I, I would have a two lane system. And I, I wrote a paper on immigration where I was proposing exactly that having a mm-hmm. two lane system. One would be a visa system, a bit like the one, the, the tier system that we have now, just greatly simplified. Mm-hmm. And the other one would be free movement. Uh, mm-hmm. It's just that in my system, free movement doesn't have to be the the eu version of free movement mm-hmm. it could apply to pretty much any country that it would just be a political choice to move mm-hmm. a country into this free movement lane mm-hmm. um i would have the whole of the european economic area in it but of course also australia new zealand uh canada for for that reason mm-hmm. and uh, yeah i think there's, there's nothing wrong we we all know that if we go abroad if we go on on holiday there are places where we just feel at home more easily than in others. Why not recognize that fact and reflect yes. uh, that in the immigration system? That, that would also be the case the other way around.
0: It could be one of the positive things of leaving the European Union. We, we could actually have a conversation about immigration and what kind of system we want, that for years and years and years, people standing for election have never really bothered to offer anything new and it could force people uh,
1: Okay, but that would always have been possible. You could have said at any time, uh, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, the government could have said free movement within Europe works okay so far. There's just no reason why that shouldn't also apply to people from New Zealand and Australia. We'll give them the same rights now. No. That would always have been possible. It's just that you would then have somebody fr- arriving from uh, Australia could have the same rights as a French uh, citizen living here mm-hmm. it's just that they wouldn't have had the possibility to then move on from Britain to France because then they would have moved into the uh, the European free movement zone mm-hmm. there it would depend on citizenship I, the,
0: I can't imagine there are that many people wanting to make that move but this is the no, beauty. but, but this and is and the beauty thing. of it you need a system that doesn't presume to know what people are going to want to do in 10 20 30 years time you need a system that actually, you know, is 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 flexible enough to to grow with the trends that people. I mean, you know, who knew twenty years ago that London would be the fourth or fifth largest French city <laughs> um, in the world? Um, you know, we 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 simply don't know what. Yeah. people are going to want to do in the future. So yeah, I think, no,
1: That was my objection to uh, the whole idea of a points-based system. It sounds very much like a more central planning of the, of the workforce. Like it could have made sense in, in the 50s maybe when it was still common to do mm. your three-year apprenticeship and then you mm-hmm. do that for your whole life. Mm-hmm. You arrive as a finished product, you have your skill set in place and then you just mm-hmm. apply it. Okay. But nowadays the way it works is much more that somebody comes here without fully formed skills mm-hmm. Would work maybe in in a, in a pub uh, in the gastronomy industry for a while, whilst also studying part time. Of course. Then doing internships and then and in five years' time, they're
0: not going to want to be doing the entry level job that they started yeah. off on. I know. Yeah. Good. Well, thank you very much for coming in. I've really enjoyed no, it, and um, I'm going to um, have a little line at the bottom of the screen so people can click on it if they want to buy a copy of your book. But sure. um, um thank you for coming in and thank you for being so generous with your time. No wonderful information. Great. Thanks.